So we are in Romans. Last week, we finished up Romans 1, and I still don't know why he wrote the book. I understand what he's saying. I'm just not sure what moved him to write all that stuff. So he starts off with sort of a standard Christian greeting, and then starting in verse 16, the sort of the thesis statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about faith. Then he goes into the wrath of God and he lists a glide path, if you will. It starts off by those who suppress the truth and those who don't give God glory and they follow the lust of their heart and they wind up at sort of the bottom of chapter 1 where it says, starting in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, once you decide that you are not going to acknowledge God, God decides he's not going to acknowledge you. So in Leviticus 26, if you do not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, but if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do all this to you. And we have a cascade. First off, he'll chastise you and he'll chastise you sevenfold and so forth. But at some point he says, if you treat me casually, I will treat you casually, which is to say I will give up on trying to correct you. That's what's going on here in Romans 1, where it says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what you have is a trajectory. If you refuse to acknowledge God, God quits acknowledging you and just lets you go your own way. And your own way results inevitably in corruption and death. Sin recruits, and so if someone is in some sin, what they want is a crowd around them because they don't feel so lonely. And if there's a whole bunch of us doing it, then God certainly will not punish that many of us. Forgetting the history of Israel where he wipes the entire country out and sends them into Babylon, Israel sort of thought the same thing. We all do it at once. Surely God won't take us all out. Then God said, oh yeah, I will, actually. And he did. As I say, sin recruits and feels better if it has a crowd, which, by the way, is the source of a lot of these so-called movements, the gay rights movement, the LBGT QWERTY movement. All of these movements are simply by way of recruiting so that the people who are practicing these things do not feel like isolated weirdos. What we are is weirdos in a crowd And if we're all weirdos in a crowd, then there must be something all right about us. That's sort of the psychology, if you will. That brings us now to chapter 2. Therefore, starts with therefore, which is to say, 
All of this we have done in chapter 1 is preamble to chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Yeshua says this several times. It is God's iron law of sowing and reaping. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's all he's saying. So if in looking at some poor, wretched sinner, you look down your nose at the poor, wretched sinner and say, you poor, wretched sinner, how can you possibly do that? But you are doing the same thing yourself in secret. What you're doing is you are speaking condemnation against yourself. Yeshua gave, among other things, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. But the idea here is whatever standard you use, it will be used for you. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. What he's saying here is not that your judgment is incorrect. So when you look upon this poor wretched sinner who is doing all this stuff cataloged in chapter 1, and we look at him and say, ooh, bad. What Paul is saying is your judgment is in fact correct. It is bad. The problem is you are judging from a position standing beside that person, not standing above that person as you regard yourself to be. So somebody looking down his nose at somebody is putting himself metaphorically above that person. And what Paul is saying is, no, you are not above that person. You are, in fact, beside that person. And so the judgment that you are rendering, which is a correct judgment, is also a judgment against yourself. Let's take it up to two and keep going. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Stop there for a minute. You all remember the sin of the spies in the wilderness, where they sent the spies into the land and the spies came back and said, oh, we can't do this. And... God got seriously chapped with them and said, okay, if you're not going to go up when I tell you to go up, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until your carcasses rot in the wilderness and I'll send the next generation. So that generation the next day said, we have sinned. They repented of their sin and said, we will go up. And Moses said, uh, no, it won't do any good. God will not be among you. And the Torah specifically says they went up presumptuously. That's the English translation in my Bible. They went up presumptuously. And what he's saying here on verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Which is to say, my God would not deal harshly with little old me, especially when I'm repenting and especially when I am judging all those sinners over there. So the idea that presuming on God's judgment is a waste of bandwidth goes all the way back to the Torah. God is, in fact, gracious, but sin will run out its course regardless of whether God happens to forgive you in the process. 
I don't have any idea what the disposition of the generation of the wilderness is eternally. Just don't know. Although the rabbis have a lovely theory, which I like very much. Don't have any idea whether it's true or not, just I like it. The thing there is in the resurrection. That generation will rise from their graves in the desert and will be led into the land by Moses, who is also buried in the wilderness. No idea whether that's true or not. It's rabbinic, but I think it's just absolutely charming because what it does is it talks about God's justice and God's grace and mercy simultaneously. His justice decreed, you don't go up when I tell you you're going to go up, then you don't go up at all. But you did repent. You are my people. And so in the resurrection, when they come up out of their graves, Moses then will lead that generation into the land. Some several thousand years later, I just find that absolutely charming. Don't have any idea whether it's true or not. So what's happening here, he is talking about someone who is looking down his nose at all those other sinners and in his own life is presuming on the grace and kindness of God. It's sort of like, well, I know it says don't commit adultery, but there's this opportunity here. And tomorrow morning, I'll repent and ask for forgiveness, and Jesus will cover it all up. That's presumption. That's what we're talking about. Now, if you are overcome by something and you sin without a high hand, as it's described in the Torah, and you repent of your sin when you realize it, yes, of course your sin is covered. But this is not that. This is talking about someone who is presuming on the grace of God. So verse 4 again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the reason that God exercises forbearance, and he'll talk about that more as we go down, the reason for his forbearance is to give you space to repent. What about the person who sins all of his life and on his deathbed he repents? Well, I don't know. Because his repentance doesn't ever have any fruit. In other words, there is no evidence that he has, in fact, done anything except said something. I don't know what that is. I don't know how that works. Yeshua certainly turned to the thief on the cross and said, This day you will be with me in paradise. Just don't know. The other part of that is it says that you will be judged on your works. And so if the last thing that you did was say the sinner's prayer and then went clonk, I'm going to suggest that even if you get in, you have no good works to carry with you. So I don't have any idea how that works. That's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is that what God is trying to do with his forbearance and patience is give you an opportunity to repent. So verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The point here is God is forbearing, holding off judgment. But that doesn't mean that the judgment has gone away. There will be a day when everything comes to a balance. And it won't necessarily be in this life. In fact, it very often will not be in this life. But there will be a point where it comes to balance. 
And what you are doing is you are storing up weight on the other end of the teeter-totter. And all your unrighteous acts are storing bricks up on the other end of the teeter-totter, and the teeter-totter is going down, 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 down. And you think you're going up, 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 but in fact, it's going to be brought back into balance. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So you've got two things going on here. Thing one is, of course, regardless of how you finish out this life, the fulcrum of the balance is not here. The fulcrum of the balance is in the afterlife. That's where the fulcrum is. Remember, we're talking about up here people who judge hypocritically. That's the subject of the paragraph. We started off, all you looking down on all those sinners over there, and you're doing the same kind of thing. So we're talking about hypocritical judges, and what he's saying is, he will render to each according to his works, both Jew and Greek. The idea here, as we're going to go through this letter, is he is going to talk about Jews, those who know the law, and Greeks are everybody else, basically, who do not know the law. And his point here is all humanity will get recompense for their behavior in this life. Doesn't matter whether you were circumcised or not. Everybody gets recompense. God will judge everybody at the end. You're talking about Jews, you know, with the gangster hats and the curly cues, non-messianics. You're talking about messianic Jews, such as Paul. He's a Jew, but he's a messianic. You are talking about proselytes who are Gentiles who are in the process of becoming Jews. And then you are talking about Gentile believers who are not Jews, but who have the Holy Spirit and believe in God, and they are coming into the synagogue because that's where the books are. So you've got all four of those groups, and what's obvious in the letter is there is conflict among those groups. So in the case of the circumcised, the Jews, they're sort of looking down on the Gentiles because we have the law of God, we are not pagan sinners like y'all, and in fact, when Peter's writing to other Hebrews, he says, we're not pagan sinners like the rest of them. We're God's chosen people. So you have that group, and then you have Gentiles who have got the Holy Spirit and have come in because they want to read the books, and they're looking down on the regular Jews because you don't believe in Yeshua. You don't believe in your own Messiah. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't walk on water and speak in tongues. So you have this conflict, if you will, where both are looking down on the other for different reasons. That's very obvious in the letter. As we go through it, it's going to be more and more obvious. So what he's doing is he's talking to both groups now and saying that as far as God's judgment is concerned, God will sort everybody out, Jew first, Greek next, but he'll get them all. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged by the law. Now stop there for a minute. This was written in Greek. This is not written in Hebrew. So every place you see law, it is the Greek nomos. And one of the things that's going to happen as we go through this book is he is going to use the word nomos in a number of different contexts. Many times it will be obvious what he's saying. Many times it will not be obvious what he's saying. So, for example, if you go back to Peter in the book of Acts, Peter and the sheet, you know, the sheet that comes down from heaven, and he's saying, I have always followed the law. Well, there's nothing in the Torah that forbids a Jew to go into a Gentile's house and eat. It's just not in the Torah. That's stuff that got added by the rabbis over a period of centuries. But Peter just says it's all Torah. It's all law. Well, Yeshua, when he's talking, separates between Moses, written law, and the traditions of men, which is oral Torah. The apostles, when they're writing, it isn't clear often which sense they're using the word. Are they talking about Moses? Or are they talking about the entire corpus of Jewish law, which is what they grew up with and which is what they call Torah? So a rabbinic observant Jew today would call it all Torah. So when he's studying Talmud, he said, we're learning Torah. That's just the way they think. 30 years ago, I was on this internet discussion group, and we were in Romans 7 or 8, somewhere around 7 or 8, and he's talking about the law of sin and death. Well, it's very obvious that that's not the Torah. But this Sunday Christian was just adamant that that's the Old Testament, that's the Torah, that's what we're talking about. Well, no, it's not. And it's pretty clear that it's not. But he was every bit as convinced that that's what Paul was saying as a rabbinic Jew would be convinced that when he's talking about Torah, he's talking about the entire corpus of Jewish law. So as you're reading Romans, every time you see the word law, it should go ding, 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 ding. I need to stop and think, what is he saying here? What does he mean by law? And sometimes it's really obvious. Other times it's not at all obvious. And you just sort of have to decide. So here in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now stop there again. I am assuming here that law means Torah, Moses. What Moses does in the Torah is he establishes standards of right and wrong from God's perspective. That's what Torah does. And you have lots and lots of case studies in Torah that back up the statutory portions of Torah. So, for example, there is a statute in Torah that you will not take a woman and her sister together while they're both still alive and marry them. Well, the case study there is back with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And so the case study is, all right, here's what happened in that case. So now we have a statute when we get to Exodus, and Exodus says, don't do this. You say, why not? 
Well, you can refer back to Genesis and read the case study and see what happened. So you have a series of statutes where Moses defines from God's perspective what's right and wrong. And what he's saying here is everybody will be judged according to that standard. God's standards are the same for Jew and for Greek. Everybody's judged according to the same standard. If you don't have the law, in other words, if you've never read Moses, you don't know anything about Moses, and you have done the best you can, and you have not murdered anybody and all of those kinds of things, and Yeshua himself says this, by the way, you will be judged more leniently than would a Jew under the same circumstances who should know better. The standard is the same. You murder somebody, that's a bad deal. The Jew should know better. The pagan may not know better, so the punishment meted out, if you will, to the pagan. Murder is perhaps a bad example because that's pretty universal. But, you know, there's others that are not so universal. But that's what he's saying here. So all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, he's not going to judge them by the strict standard of the Torah. He will simply go to the moral principles of the Torah and judge them there. But for all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I will give you an example. And I'm not speaking out of school because pretty much everybody knows that. Ray and I were out hunting one year. And Ray shot two moose. And moose are not in season and he didn't have a permit for moose. But it was just sort of at the edge of shooting light. And he didn't realize that there were two of them. So he shot and it was still standing. So he shot again, and he's now got two dead moose on the ground. And so we did the right thing. We cleaned them, gutted them, skinned them, threw them in the truck, took them back to the cabin. You know, you're not allowed to waste the meat. And then the next morning, we called the game warden. Fast forward about a month, and we're going before the game commission, deciding what the penalty is going to be. We've cooperated. We've done everything right. We haven't tried to hide anything. Just a mistake. And I'm explaining to the game warden that this is Ray's first time big game hunting. I mean, you know, he's a 55-year-old man, but this is the first time he's ever been to big game hunting. He's not experienced. He hasn't been doing this for all his life and so forth. And the judge fined Ray, I think, 500 bucks, which is very lenient. And the judge looked at me and says, you know, if you'd been the one that shot him, this would be a very different conversation because I've been hunting all my life, and I don't have any idea how many deer and elk and antelope I've shot. The point I'm making is, from the Game Commission's perspective, Ray was someone who had sinned without the law, whereas if I had been the one who had shot two moose, I would have been in the category of someone who had sinned under the law because I should know better. I have experienced Ray was not. That's what's being said here. So anyway, verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So again, those who have heard the law who do not obey it are in no better position, and in fact, they're in worse position than those who have never heard the law. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. In other words, it shows that they are inherently moral people. And they may not have all the details right. They may not understand all the case studies, but they are trying their best to be moral people. 
They are not trying to be wicked. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Everybody's got a conscience. And one of the things about atheists is most atheists are not atheists, they are anti-religious. There's a difference. Most people who are atheists don't necessarily hate God, although they might. What they hate more is the church. They will still behave in moral ways. Most atheists don't go around raping and murdering and stealing and all that kind of stuff. They are trying to behave in a moral way. They just hate the church. And by extension, then, God. But God has put a conscience within them so that they know at some level what's right and what's wrong. Everybody does. So what they have done is they have seared their conscience, if you will, by turning that to hatred of religion. In other words, I now have a focus of my anger, which is the church. So let's try 15 again, see if I can get through it. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Messiah Yeshua. So God is going to judge the secrets of men. And those of you who are here on Shabbat, one of the things I was talking about in the parable in Mark, the parable of the light that is not under a bushel, remember I said that there are two senses in which that imagery is used. In parts of the gospel, it is used of you. You have the light of Christ. Do not hide that light under a bushel. In the Mark passage, it is in the sense of Messiah. He is the light of the world, and the light that he brings into the world will expose the secrets of men. That's the sense it's used in Mark, although in other places in the Gospels it's used of you. And so what it's saying here in verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Messiah Yeshua. The light that Messiah brings into the world will shine on men and will expose the dark places of their hearts, and we will scatter like cockroaches. That's what that's saying. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember, we started all of this off by talking about hypocrisy. Two different standards. There's a standard that applies to you, and then there's a standard that applies to me. And certainly the standard applying to me is going to be far more lenient than the standard applying to you. So then what he's doing is he is turning around and talking to Jews. And he is saying, all right, you have got all of this instruction, and you regard yourself as someone who is qualified to judge others. However, if you do things that are contrary to the law, 
while holding yourself out as a judge of others, what you are doing is bringing dishonor upon God and upon the gospel. Remember I was talking a few minutes ago about atheists who don't really hate God so much as they hate the church. And one of the reasons that they hate the church is exactly this kind of stuff, where you have people in the church who are doing stuff that is unsavory, and then turn around and look at someone else who is doing something perhaps different that's unsavory, and look down their long noses at them and condemn them. People can spot hypocrisy a mile away. So what they do is they then turn from God, and they turn from the gospel, and they turn from the church, because they don't want to be associated with people who espouse that but don't live it. That's what he's saying. And there's one in there that I do not understand. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I have no idea what that means. Everything else is pretty clear to me, but that one I don't understand. I mean, I can understand abhorring idols. Got that. It's in the Torah. I can understand not associating with idols. Got that. It's in the Torah. I can understand not going into pagan temples. Got that. It's in the Torah. What I don't understand is robbing temples. You remember the incident in Ephesus where you had the craftsmen who were doing silver images and rose up in riot? Are we talking about disrespecting pagan idols or are we talking about disrespecting the symbols of Jehovah? Don't know the answer to any of that. Sure, it's important because Paul wrote it down, but as we're crunching through that, it's one of those things I just don't understand. 25. All right, now remember, who are we talking to here? We're talking to Jews, right? So back up in verse uh, 17, it says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, okay, so we're talking to Jews here. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. You have what I would call a moral Gentile who doesn't have knowledge of the Torah, and who is not circumcised, but is leading a moral life. And he is going to be a judge over someone who is a ethnic Jew, is circumcised, but does not keep the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. All right, let's unpack that. First off, his praise is not from man, but from God. One of the things about circumcision is it is a tribal mark. For example, if you remember when Paul brought Timothy to Jerusalem, the circumcision party was going into the bathroom and checking him out as he was relieving himself. Is he circumcised? In other words, it is a social thing as well as a religious obligation. And what we have in Deuteronomy, there are two circumcisions of the heart. And let me find them so I can quote them to you directly. The first one is in Deuteronomy 10. Verse 15, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. 
Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So what he's saying is you've got the physical circumcision on your body. You need to circumcise your heart. And then if we go down to Deuteronomy 30, and what we're talking about there is after the exile and everything comes back, Deuteronomy 30 verse 5, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. So this is post-exile, after Babylon, after the Roman exile, all of that kind of stuff, right? And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So the idea there is after all the exiles, all of the storm and drang that we go through, God's finally going to bring them back and God's going to do the circumcision. That's new covenant speak. So in, in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, what he's saying is, if you guys want to avoid exile, you need to circumcise your heart, which is to say you need to take the Torah into your heart as best you are able and live according to the Torah, and the better job you do of that, the longer you will remain in the land. But I know that you're a stiff-necked people, and I know that you're not going to be able to do it completely. So at the end of days, God will bring you back, and he will do the circumcision. Now, with that background, we come back to verse 25 in Romans 2. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. So what Paul is doing here is channeling Moses. And he's going back to Deuteronomy, and he's saying, all right, Moses says back in Deuteronomy that you got to do the physical circumcision. That's a covenant with Abraham. It's important. Eighth day, circumcision. But the thing that's more important is the circumcision of the heart. And that's something that you will do with the help of the Spirit of God. And the better job you do of circumcising your own heart, the longer you will live in the land and prosper. But at the end of days, God will take you back and he will do the circumcision because no man can circumcise his own heart to the standards that God would demand. And we go into chapter 3, and he'll say, then what advantage has the Jew? He's just gone through this riff where he says physical circumcision is not the standard that God is going to use. What standard God is going to use is he's going to look at your heart and see if you have circumcised your own heart. So the next thing he's going to say in chapter 3, well then what's the point of being a Jew? That's the subject of chapter 3, which we will do in two weeks. The idea here is not that physical circumcision is unimportant. It's that you can't use physical circumcision as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to walk according to Torah. 
And if you're walking according to Torah, then physical circumcision is very profitable. And if you're not walking according to Torah, physical circumcision buys you nothing. Shut